Steve Fuller is a philosopher at the University of Warwick and the author of Humanity 2.0. This is Steve Fuller. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I'm here with Steve Fuller. Steve, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me, Duncan. Um, so last time we, we talked about uh, sort of the concept of post-truth, um, that world that we're living in. And one thing that we did not touch on, but that you've written extensively about is transhumanism, uh, which is a concept that's really interesting to me uh, and to a lot of other people. Um, but just to get our bearings here before we start, um, can you explain what transhumanism is? Okay, so transhumanism um, is a movement um, in, a, in a very general kind of sense. Um, so, so it covers, you might say it covers politics and culture and, and it has uh, you know, some uh, influence within academia. Uh, most transhumanists tend to be outside of academia though, though they tend to be um, very well educated in, uh, in issues having to do with science and technology, especially uh, as we go forward in the future. I think the most important thing to understand about transhumanism at the outset is that it sees itself as basically um, affirming uh, the long-term effects that the development of science and technology have, have had on the human condition. And what they basically want to do is to carry on with it, uh, even perhaps accelerate it. And indeed, I think most transhumanists believe that we're already on this trajectory and in a sense, what transhumanism then does is provide a kind of um, a kind of imaginary, a kind of worldview uh, to accompany this kind of direction of travel that the human condition has been in, at least for the last 300, 400 years. Um, some people would say this was already built in as soon as Homo sapiens came on the planet and started using technology. Um, but that's the general point. Um, so. Um, I think uh, if you want to say, you know, who is uh, who would be against transhumanism? Well, clearly people who think that science and technology have gone out of control and are about to destroy the planet. Um, and, and so obviously those people would not be transhumanists. In fact, uh, in the academic literature, we often call these people posthumanist. And I think that's a good word to put on the table as a kind of um, intellectual contrast, because um, in a sense, transhumanism is very pro-human, actually thinks that everything, you know, if we understand what the human is properly, we can just keep on promoting it indefinitely. And to be human is actually to extend ourselves through science and technology. That's basically the transhumanist argument in a nutshell. Post-humanists believe that the fact that we are so preoccupied with being human, right, and all the things that, as it were, idiosyncratically mark us as a species, for example, science and technology, is exactly the thing that ends up leading us to destabilize the planet in which we live with all these other non-human things, right? Animals, plants, right? Uh, the, 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 you know, the atmosphere and, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of other things. And so the environmental problems that we have, as it were, is symptomatic of the idea of, of, of going down a kind of transhumanist route, which amounts to just basically human hubris. And so post-humanism wants to pull back from that and to decenter the human and have a much more generic kind of conception of life, you know, biodiversity, for example, as something that's worth promoting rather than this kind of humans first kind of philosophy, which uh, transhumanism, I think, is fairly portrayed as. 
Okay. And so when a lot of people think of transhumanism, they're thinking about the modification of the body, um, of sort of merging with technology. And you mentioned here, we're sort of already on this trajectory. Um, Things like pacemakers, uh, you know, implants, these kinds of things. Would that technically count as transhumanism? Yes. I mean, you know, it, when when trans, you know, so if if you're going to make this kind of argument that in some sense transhuman is built into the history of science and technology, at least if not into the human DNA altogether, um, yeah, you would have to start uh, all these technologies that enhance us in some way, right? The word enhancement is is very much a kind of transhumanist word. Uh, because we're not just talking about in some way restoring the body the way in which you might understand medicine in a conventional sense, Um, but rather we're actually um, using science and technology to give the body new powers that it otherwise might not have. So in the past, when pacemakers did not exist, people simply died, right? And back in those days, dying was considered natural. Right. So the conception was and this was very much part of medicine, even, you know, the worldview of medicine until the mid 19th century uh, was the idea that there is something called a life cycle. Right. You born, you mature, you decline and then you die. Um, And that's because humans are natural beings and that's how nature works generally. Um, and, And so the role of the doctor under those circumstances would be, as it were, to facilitate people along this process at various stages. And one of the stages would be dying. And so if you find out, you know, if you get a heart attack, you know, and you're and, and you're somehow incapacitated, um, uh, th- then, you know, and, and it looks like, you know, your days are numbered. Right. What the doctor does is offer, you know, various kinds of consolation, maybe some you know, medicine that alleviates the pain. Right. But at the end of the day, you're allowed to die. But as soon as we start getting pacemakers and stuff like that on board, right, then the assumption is that dying is not inevitable, um, right? And that in some sense, at least, you you know, the, and, and the, in principle, you could extend life indefinitely, right? Uh, uh, and, and that technology would be the way to do it. And so, yeah, pacemakers, if you understand, you know, so if you understand a pacemaker uh, in terms of extending life that would otherwise die, rather than in terms of understanding it as something that restores the heart to a natural function, then you're thinking like a transhumanist. Uh, okay, so a um, couple questions there. One, when you said about the inevitab- inevitability of death, um, this is something that you know, people like Peter Thiel, for example, uh, rail against in, in his words, That's right. I- ideological position that uh, we inevitably die. Are, are you someone- That's who right, that's be- what- Transhumanists are on, he's a transhumanist in that very clear sense, yes. Okay, so transhumanists, in other words, as a group, would generally believe that death is not inevitable. Let's put it this way. The minimum they would believe, so some of them believe that we could live forever, but the minimum they would believe is that that, uh, it is not necessary to die of so-called natural causes. Okay. And and do you feel on any level like this is... um, I mean, this is something that humans would dearly wish. You know, fear of death is probably most people's greatest fear. Um, and that fears can blind us on some level. Do you feel like on, on any level people are being um, misled by their fears in, into a false belief? I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually, to be honest with you. And I do think that, um, um, that transhumanists need to um, examine this closely as to why why death is kind of the issue for them. 
I mean, I mean, there is this intellectual argument that is that is undoubtedly true, namely that since we started to um, treat medicine as a very science and technology intensive field, and this begins in the nineteenth in mid nineteenth century, once we start to, you might say, have a much more mechanistic conception of the body, right, where the body is a bunch of parts and and some of them fall apart and then you replace them, right? I mean, you start to get that mentality within medicine only in the middle of the nineteenth century, and it carries on indefinitely you know, to the present day. And so in that sense, transhumanism is built into this kind of history of scientific medicine. And the way you see it is the fact that uh, a lot of value is placed, not only by transhumanists, but by the medical profession itself and about by the larger society on being able to live longer, live healthier, right? Those things is becoming uh, desirable goals uh, with regard to what medicine is supposed to be promoting, right? Um, that is very much fits in with the transhumanist mentality though you don't need to be a transhumanist to hold those views. You start to become a transhumanist when you when death you know, becomes the thing that you, know, you have to overcome, that that becomes the target. And then you have to ask why. Um, my general view in terms of where I stand on this um, is first of all, I, I kind of accept the, uh, the transhumanist narrative about how we should be telling the history of humanity in terms of how science and technology has transformed us, okay? I think that's basically correct. Uh, and that we are moving on this trajectory. I don't think that's, I don't find that very controversial at all, actually. I do, and I do think um, that we are going to make it uh, possible for people to live uh, indefinitely, certainly longer and longer and longer, um, you know? And so in other words, the, 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 the need, you know, as it were, the inevitability of dying from natural causes, I think will gradually recede. Now, will it recede as fast as a lot of transhumanists say? You know, so some transhumanists are saying, you know, we'll be able to regenerate uh, our cells on a regular basis, you know, in the next 20, 30 years. And so in a sense, we can become perpetual motion machines in our own bodies. I don't believe that's going to happen, but I do believe we're, we're moving in that direction. So then the issue of death comes up. Now, now the question to me, this is the way I would put the question. If you can live forever or, you know, indefinitely, um, then it seems to me death becomes an option, right? And, and then you start to, and when something becomes an option, right, then there becomes, there's a moral issue involved, you know, in a, in, in, and a different moral issue from the way we normally think about death. Because I think the reason why there are all these taboos on, um, on, on suicide, for example, and euthanasia, and perhaps even on murder, um, is because there is some sense in which life is is finite, and the the finitude of life, um, you, you know, gives it a kind of preciousness, a sort of sanctity, and 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 I could can see the logic of that, and and so one doesn't want to be too fast and loose about terminating it, right? Um, and and this also applies to the uh, taboos on abortion as, as well, actually. Um, and but the problem is that as you do extend life, as you make it you know, indefinite and so forth, and that you can carry on for, forever, then I think some of those kind of taboos against death start to disappear. And then the question becomes, why do you want to stick around, right? And is it, and, and, and are you doing anyone other than yourself a favor by sticking around, okay? And so I think a lot of these issues, especially with regard to euthanasia uh, and, and suicide, uh, will become uh, much more explicit. They should become much more explicit uh, and much more tolerable and much more acceptable in a world in which people can live indefinitely. Okay, 
So that's where I'm coming from on the death issue with regard to transhumanism. I think it turns death into a lifestyle choice. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying. Like, in other words, if we can all, in theory, live forever, then all deaths will will either be tragic accidents or suicides. You know, that's that's what I suppose. Right. I mean, so 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 in in a sense, um, you know, when when I see all these people who are afraid of death, you know, like people like Peter Thiel, for example, you know, who are transhumanists and are afraid of death. Right. That seems to me incongruous Um, unless right in some sense, you know, you think um, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe there's an maybe there's some narcissism involved. I don't know. Uh, Or maybe it's just kind of. There's a sense in which um, people people haven't really thought out very clearly what it would mean to eliminate death from a moral standpoint. Yeah, I, I mean, and also, you know, there's the question of huge number of population. Um, when you're 200 years old or 300 years old, let's say you're alive, but how useful would you be? Um, or, or maybe people at that age would be so wise that we, we would we would cherish them. That, that's the problem, actually. Actually, that's the problem. People make it sound like it's great, but it's the problem. Because, in fact, if you, you know, because look, so here we, you know, so 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 Peter Thiel, who, you know, I, I perfectly like and respect, actually. I mean, um, he's a venture capitalist, um, and he's someone who puts a lot of store by innovation, right? And in a way, transhumanism is very much very pro-innovation, very pro, you know, we got to get those new ideas out there. We got to try new things, right? The problem with the, the kind of society we live in is that we have all these kind of moral restrictions that make it impossible to experiment on the kinds of things that would enable us to live indefinitely, right? I mean, this is a very standard kind of thing, right? Peel yeah. believes this too. And, and so the question then, beca- you know, so then you have to look, look from the standpoint of the human condition as it is now that has already produced all of this entrepreneurship and innovation and all the rest of it, right? That is to say, in the period before we're able to live forever, how was that possible? Um, and it seems to me uh, that one of the important um, sociological, even biological conditions um, is the fact that generations change. There is a succession of generations. I mean, um, typically, I mean, if, if you want to make a, it, it's a bit of a, a crass generalization, but it's not that far off that if you want, you know, so ideas, you know, innovative ideas, as it were, are always coming up. Right. And but the interesting thing is who and when are they acted upon so that they actually get results? OK, and that's this is where the generational change comes in. Because younger people, first of all, do not have the burden of the past in terms of the memory of it, right? So in other words, uh, and, and that's part of the, to do with not only the fact that they weren't around physically, right? They weren't alive, right? But also because they're not invested in it, right? Because the younger people, even if they've been educated in the old ways, haven't yet spent their career doing it, right? Because this, this is the diabolical thing, right? That the more you actually participate uh, in uh, the cultures of the past, which we all inevitably do, of course, in order to get social recognition in the present, right? The more, uh, as it were, you're going to be, the less inclined you're going to be to actually want to push out in a new direction that potentially would overturn this past that up to this point has provided the basis for your own legitimacy, okay? And that, and that's, I see, and younger people don't have that burden, right? They don't have the memory of it. They don't have the investment in it. 
Um, and I think that's really important. Okay. So what you would, so what would be really important to be honest with you, if you want to continue this kind of innovative, you know, experimenting kind of culture that in fact is kind of seen as a sort of ideal within transhumanism, you would need to be cycling through different people, or at the very least, you'd need to be laundering people's memories periodically so they don't have a perfect memory of the past. I mean, you, you know, so in other words, you, you, can't, you can't be operating in the mode that somehow we're just gonna be building, 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 building on memories of the past, because that just leads to stagnation, frankly. Right. Uh, and, and so you do need ruptures. Right. And ruptures, of course, can come from other ways. You have wars, you have economic collapses, you, you know, all kinds of ways in which ruptures take place in society. But the one reliable way in which ruptures take place is generational change. And that has to do with the fact that individuals live finite lives. They die eventually. They have to retire eventually. And usually, you know, their bodies indicate when that should happen. Um, and you see transhumanism, in a way, puts a spanner in those works. Uh, and, and, and that, I think, is problematic, actually. Yeah, and it speaks to this fact when we're talking about transhumanism and the direction this could this could go in. Um, we are evolved creatures on this earth. Um, I think it's fair to say that we did not, you know, there, there are many features of modern life that we did not evolve to um, to to be a part of. And it kind of throws our bodies out of whack. I mean, just just the fact that we have electric lights um, going on all the time has disrupted our sleep cycle. Um, and when we talk about things earlier, like we mentioned the pacemaker, you know, that is something that on some level could be interpreted to just replace the normal functions of a human heart. But when we're advancing into areas where, you know, death is being eliminated or we're merging with, um, you know, uh, artificial intelligence in a way that, that greatly enhances our cognitive ability, um, is there not a concern that we could just throw our, our body and our ecosystem totally out of whack here? Well, I mean, I think we've already, be, you know, we've already done that in a way, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be having an environmental crisis because, you know, the environmental crisis largely has to do with the way in which we have redeployed the planet since the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, to make it more human-like. This is why this term Anthropocene is used, right, uh, by geologists and others to describe the way in which the earth has become, you know, reconfigured to be oriented to a certain kind of human condition, which is, you know, the modern human condition, which is the one that transhumanism celebrates. And, the, and, and we're already seeing that there are some serious problems with how long that can continue, okay? And so it's not by accident, for example, that you get uh, quite a few transhumanists, um, you know, who nowadays say we have to populate other planets, right? It's almost as if, you know, when, when, when I look at a guy like Elon Musk, for example, who I don't think is putting a lot of, I mean, you know, the closest thing he comes to, you know, to being ecologically friendly is these electric cars of his. Um, are they electric? Yeah. Is Tesla electric? No, they're just driverless. Or are they electric too? They're, they're, electric. they're both? Yeah. Correct. Okay. Okay. So that that's one thing he's doing that's ecologically sound. I, you know, the whole point of shooting rockets up into space, right? Especially if he wants to be able to transport large numbers of people, right? I mean, he's you know, he's he's kind of hedging his bets on whether Earth is going to you know be where it's at in in the next fifty hundred years. Okay. That that is completely 
that is a very transhumanist way to look at this stuff, right? The earth is just a platform, right? If, the, if it, it turns out that, you know, it doesn't work, we just move, right? And who's this we who's going to be moving is interesting. But the point is, this is, this is kind of, tra transhumanists do have a fairly um, relaxed attitude toward nature. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and, and Elon Musk is also another guy who said things like, you know, we are already cyborgs with reference to our phones. I mean, they have become kind of attached to us in a sense, psychologically, if not. Well, but, but see, okay, but see this, this again, now this aspect of the issue um, actually uh, does show the, the extent to which transhumanism is already here. Because um, uh, there, there was a, a Supreme Court case in the United States. Uh, I teach, one of the things I do is I teach law students at Warwick. Uh, and, um, and I like to get them kind of thinking about, um, you know, this idea of um, cyborg rights um, and, and, um, and other kinds of rights, actually. So animal rights, too, and, you know, all sorts of rights. Um, and, and the thing is that there's a Supreme Court case from, uh, I believe, 2000, uh, 2014, uh, Riley versus California, uh, which was about um, a police doing some kind of investigation where they confiscated a, um, a smartphone of someone. Uh, and, um, and what the case was about, uh, and because then the police wanted to check the, the messages on the phone, all this kind of stuff. Um, the, um, the case was about whether the phone should be considered uh, simply property of the person from whom it was taken, okay, or it should be considered part of the proper of the person themselves, right? And this has to do with the fact uh, that the person wasn't able to function without access to the phone. Um, you know, so the phone just didn't have the phone messages. It had obviously a lot of other things that were very crucial for this person to live. Um, and and so the case was about that basically. And and. Um, and the uh, the plaintiff won, right? So so uh, so the court decided that indeed the smartphone, from a legal standpoint, so you know that in a sense the police event, uh, essentially didn't only take the smartphone in the sense of confiscating property, but actually assaulted the person. Mm. Okay, actually did some kind of you know proper damage to the person. Um, so that's transhumanist, right? That is kind of what Musk is talking about, actually. That's a legal example where we're we're already there, right? And 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 of course, when people lose their phones, all you know, especially if they don't have any backups or anything for it, right? It's like, like you know, it's 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 like you know, suffering a kind of cerebral hemorrhage or something. Yeah, and, and so we're there actually. That's a great legal precedent to establish, I think, because. You know, it, it's certainly to to just look at a phone as another piece of property, property like um, you know, like a stove or your car. It, 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 it's not comparable. I do think there's a qualitative difference. I don't think we have that precedent in the states, though, which is uh, I don't know, unfortunate. Has this changed no, in the United States? This was well, Riley, Riley versus Riley versus California. This was a U.S. Okay. This was a U.S. Supreme Court case, actually. Really? I mean, wow. I mean, um, I mean, of course, with all, yeah, yeah, yeah with all these, cases, yeah, and if you, you, if you look up the phrase cyborg law, you'll find it. It was kind of the thing that put, and then all of a sudden, think legal think tanks, uh, Brookings Institution, all these different legal think tanks started to put out white papers trying to explain what all this meant and so forth. Um, 
mean, because obviously, you know, this is 2014 when this happened. Um, I mean, you, you know, smartphones are always developing and becoming much more integral into people's lives. So you can imagine, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know what the state of what the state of legal play would be. It makes it actually very difficult um, for the police uh, to actually, you know, do the kind of searching of. So now, by the way, this I, I just, just to 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 to. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this point, sure. but one of the reasons why now the um, one tries to access messages of people right uh, through the internet by getting some kind of access to, um, you know, to to larger platforms where these messages are stored, right, is to kind of avoid this kind of issue of having to deal with the phone. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so this is where you know the issues with Facebook and Google. Right. And, you know, and all these other kind of um, Amazon, you know, data storage pl places, basically. Um, that's where a lot of the legal action starts to move then. Right. Because those things are not part of any proper person. And so no. they should be searchable. Um, you see, so th this is um, th that's kind of what, what happened there as far as that's concerned. But 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 you're right. I mean, the implications for this are, are actually quite, you know, given the way that the, the smartphone technology is developing is quite significant. Yeah. And, and, you know, when the smartphone was introduced, I don't think anyone would have anticipated that that was the direction it was headed in. But, and on similar note, when we talk about transhumanism and the direction this is headed in, um, how do you anticipate this playing out? I, I mean, it, it seems like certain people well, may, I mean, it, go ahead. I, I think there are a couple of things here and, and, and the smartphone case, brings it out very clearly if if the smartphone is considered part of your proper person as this supreme court case seemed to suggest um then your person is physically distributed right 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 because there's your your your, your biological body and there's a smartphone and they're both part of the same person but they're not attached to each other right um so that's one thing uh, namely, uh, there's going to be an issue in transhumanism, and this has a lot to do, by the way, with, with a principle that transhumanists believe in called morphological freedom, morphological freedom, which is the right to be in whatever form you want. And normally we think about this in terms of, okay, I want to be in my own body, but I want to be able to live forever, or I want to upload my mind into a computer and live there forever. But then, of course, there is this business with the cyborg stuff, right? Because the cyborg stuff, in many cases, like with the smartphone, uh, the parts are distributed. And in other cases, the parts are, you might say, exchangeable, replaceable, removable. Okay? You know, so for example, I give an, you know, you, 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 uh, you can have, uh, think of Batman, right? Batman, our dear friend Batman. Batman's a cyborg, okay? He's a cyborg because when he puts on his cape and his car and, you know, and, and, and he, you know, gets himself into this Batman mode, right? And he's got his jet pack and he's got all kinds of stuff going on where it becomes Batman, right? And then he can take it all off and, you know, and be Bruce Wayne again, okay? Um, now, you see, there's that aspect. And, and, and a lot of the cyborg stuff... Like, think about um, Elon Musk's Neuralink, right? Neuralink is basically a hat, right? I mean, or a beanie or something. Um, and it's like Batman, right? Where you can wear it or not wear it, 
right? And when you wear it, you have the superpowers. Um, and, and you see, this is this 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 is kind of interesting, right? That there there are all these different modes of being, as it were, that you can be as a transhumanist. Um, so. Um, so transhumanism, in a way, even before we get to kind of where your question is going, because your question is basically, I take it to be about, well, what happens to normal human beings, um, right? Already transhumanism is kind of opening the door to a really wide spectrum of different ways of being transhuman, right? And, and they don't, it's not obvious that, that they all sit together very comfortably, okay? Because they require different... Um, you might say different resource requirements, right? In order to uh, in order to survive, uh, different space, right? I mean, I mean, there are differences. There are significant differences because materially they're so different, and and this is something I don't think we've we've really had to face so clearly before. Because even if we were talking about something like biodiversity, right, where we're really talking about all the animal, plant, species of the world, they're actually quite similar from the standpoint of transhumanism in that they're all carbon based, right? They all, you know, there's a sense in which the range of stuff that they require in terms of the way the atmosphere has to be and all the rest of it, right? I mean, it's within a kind of fairly clear range. Um, and that's why all these things can survive together actually. But when you open the door to transhumanism, then all sorts of different things start to arise, uh, different kinds of uh, needs and, and energy requirements and stuff of that that kind. And then if you add on top of that, the fact that there are going to be some, what I call humanity 1.0, right? The kind of normal humans who don't want to be enhanced, right? How do they live in this kind of opened up environment? So it's a real tricky issue. How exactly do you organize the world where you allow so much morphological freedom? Right. And I guess part of the question, uh, as you anticipated that I was sort of going with this, where we have, you know, quote unquote, normal humans, um, even when we talk about things like pacemakers or implants or whatever, that is accessed um, in terms of a global perspective by a relatively privileged few. I mean, I imagine, um, you know, some peasant farmer in China doesn't have access to these things or, uh, you know, some guy in a slum in Bangladesh. Um, and I would imagine that, at least initially, the cost of, of um, these technologies would be even higher than a pacemaker. And so... Oh, yeah, yeah, no. No, exactly, exactly. You know, w would this on some yeah, level I mean, accelerate inequality? Well, I think if, if it were a completely market-driven thing, yes. And it might even lead to enormous amounts of conflict, right? And wars and all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, um, and, and who would actually win in, in such situations, to be honest, is not so obvious to me. Because um, if, especially if we take up the more, you know, scaled up versions of transhumanism, uh, um, which require enormous amount of, um, you know, um, energy to, to to fuel the computers and I mean you already look at look at the crisis that's already you know the energy crisis that's committed by blockchain okay you know and and Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff right I mean you know and that's just the tip of the, the iceberg in terms of the energy requirements these things could be generating to bring about transhumanist fantasies 
unless we actually move very quickly into quantum computing. Um, you know, so so the thing is, yes, I mean, we're, we're setting ourselves up, if it's unregulated, we're setting ourselves up for enormous amounts of conflict at all kinds of levels, not just the inequality level, but also the energy usage level, okay? I mean, because if nothing else, and this is a point I always, I always try to... Uh, uh, drive home to people who are always thinking that the future lies in our uploading our minds to big machines right. is that no matter, even granted all of the uh, fallibilities of the human brain, the human brain remains by far the most energy efficient way of doing a vast range of different mental tasks. Okay. If you talk about the whole heterogeneity of the of the human mind in terms of what it can process and then look at the energy requirements for it in terms of numbers of calories it has to have and all that kind of jazz, right? That it is incredibly efficient. Computers can't get anywhere near it. Even, you know, of course, computers can outperform humans in increasing numbers of individual tasks. That's true. But the energy requirements for doing it are enormous. And so, um, I mean, we really have issues here. It's not just about that people won't have access to the stuff. It's that is that even you know even if we tried to give people access to the stuff and we wanted to be very democratic about it, it would still be an ecological nightmare. Yeah. Um, and and so so I I mean there are transhumanist fixes in a way, right? And 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 it and and uh, of course one would be leave the planet. And and sometimes when you listen to guys like Elon Musk, um, you get the impression. That, that in a sense, you know, because you got to think, who's going to leave the planet? Well, if, if all these people with their transhumanist fantasies left the planet, that might work, right? <laughs> if guys like Elon Musk and all his friends went to the moon and terraformed it and terraformed it or whatever they're going to do to it, or Mars or whatever, right? Uh, th th that could solve a lot of problems, actually. Okay, so if you, you know, if you take the transhumanists at their word, let them build their rockets, let them go there, let them disappear... Um, that could solve the problem. I don't think that's quite what they have in mind, though. Uh, but, but, but that would be one way to do it. Um, there is another way I'd like, I'd like to suggest, and I think this is a much more um, clever kind of public relations angle on this. Um, because, of course, all, because, you know, even though a lot of the, uh, the, the sort of extreme fantasies of, of transhumanism have not been realized, um, and 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 probably most of them will not be realized in the time frames that they imagine, whatever 2040, 2050, whatever we're talking about as the uh, end date. Um, nevertheless, there is already an enormous PR campaign, right? Uh, enormous. Um, I mean, I mean, and you see it, in, you know, in Hollywood films. Uh, I mean, you see it in terms of a lot of boosterism to raise money within transhumanism to fund all these institutes that are trying to get people to live forever and all of that kind of stuff. There's a no, I mean, and the billionaires, of course, are throwing all their money at it. Um, and, and so there's this enormous, you know, you know, public relations thing, uh, kind of public relations machine that in a way is getting people accustomed uh, to these transhumanist futures even before they happen, right? And getting them used to it, right? So that if it happens tomorrow, they won't be surprised. Um, and and so, one of the uh, one of the things um, that would that that could work in a way to um, enable transhumanism to be in some sense ecologically viable. And again, I'm not recommending this, but I can see some kind of 
you know, Machiavellian person in Facebook thinking this way, um, is is uh, you you get people into the idea um, that it is in fact better to upload themselves into a machine, into one machine even, right? Because um, if you if you have a kind of convincing kind of way, and I when I say convincing. I'm not talking about a deep philosophical point here. Um, I'm talking about convincing people to actually, as it were, make digital clones of themselves, very sophisticated digital clones, right? Which have algorithms that not only take all of the data that they, you know, not just the data in their minds, but but because we have so much of our so much of our personal data is externalized, right? In text and audio and video, all this kind of jazz. Right, so much of that is out there that if you have a clever algorithm that's able to mix and match this stuff and combine it and produce holographic effects and all this kind of stuff, right, um, that could be uploaded into a machine. In fact, many thousands of those things could be uploaded into a machine, okay? Um, And then you could just dispose of the biological body afterwards. Right. Um, and, and so you'd have something like, you know, if you remember those those later Star Trek episodes about the Borg, right, the Borg, which is kind of like that. Right. The Borg is basically all of these different, you know, kind of digital beings, as it were, in one big machine. Uh, and and, pe- and people can kind of communicate with it in some way. Um, and so uh, eventually what happens is that um, what was formerly uh, a, a biological specimen of a human being gets uploaded as a digital clone and becomes basically a kind of glorified digital neuron in this kind of computerized brain that's being built. Right. And, 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 and you see, if you get people thinking that way, that that's kind of a desirable way to transition, not to die, but to transition out of their biological bodies into a new and higher form that will actually enable them to have access to all new kinds of experiences and other things that they could never have in their biological bodies, <clears throat> they'll go for it. I mean, at least this is possible. I mean, especially given that, you know, we, we're, we're certainly creating a, a kind of cultural atmosphere that, 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 that is, that is um, conducive to this. And, and this is where the meta, metaverse, metaverse comes in. Because if this metaverse uh, is going to be uh, um, as uh, Mark Zuckerberg thinks <coughs> or hopes or whatever, uh, then that will be the platform for this to happen, right? People spending all their time creating whole new identities in this kind of very hyped up version of Second Life. Um, and 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 that'll be where they live, right? You know, and they'll be behind, you know, normally they'll be behind the screen, but they may you know, start to have the desire uh, to just spend their whole time on the other side of the screen. And, um, and I could see this being a good, this could be, this could be advertised, this could be marketed. I, I, I think people are spending already enough time in front of their computer screens um, that, 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 you know, it would only take a few steps to move much more in to the desirability of being a digital clone. So, 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 you know, uh, the idea of living in your body, biological body forever or even even living in in your biological body with a lot of machinery attached to you uh that might actually be seen as kind of a, a bit passe old-fashioned if we got into if we got metaverse into overdrive um 
that's a possibility that could and that could be ecologically feasible because all you'd be would be kind of this digital stuff floating around. Uh, I'm curious. At the start of this discussion, um, you'd made a distinction between the transhumanists and the posthumanists, where the posthumanists yeah. uh, resist these developments um, right. and and think that you know the things that, in other words, quote unquote, make us human, like science and technology, have gone too far uh, and that we need that's to scale right. back. Um, however, right. now we're talking about transhumanism leading to a direction where we we free ourselves or separate from our biological selves and are uploaded in a computer. I mean, it isn't uh, on some level. I, I feel uh, I feel like some of the people who are proponents of that um, look at human beings as uh, sort of not even human 1.0 as a human beta version, like just an inferior product that is yet to be perfected. Well, there, there may be some truth to that. I, I mean, I think the, I think the more, uh, more productive way to look at it though, is that, um, and this is where I think this whole Silicon Valley mentality has been very influential on all this. You really got to take yes. seriously. See, that 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 our carbon-based bodies, and this goes for all the other animal species as well, um, are just platforms. They're just platforms. And so, what you're imagining? So, you're, let's say you're one of these Silicon Valley guys who wants everybody to go, you know, to digitally upload, right? What is your view about biological evolution? Your view is that. Um, it's kind of the 1.0 version of what Silicon Valley can do. Um, and, and so the idea being that is if you leave everything to kind of these Darwinian processes of, you know, random variation and natural selection, right? And, and the genes combine in various kinds of ways in a very haphazard fashion and some survive, some don't survive. And the whole process takes kind of billions and billions of years. Uh, and then you get kind of these kind of uh, various phases of different kinds of species coming up and going, you know, they, they live for a while and then they die. Um, you know, that's one way to do it. That's what happens when you're, you know, working with a carbon medium that's relatively unconstrained environmentally and, and all kinds of stuff can kind of happen and interfere. Uh, but that's a bit messy. Um, and, and so in a sense, we are lucky that we got on the scene in the first place. Uh, this way. But now that we're here, now that we're here, and especially precisely because we understand evolution in the way in which no other species ever has, we are now able to do it better, more efficiently, and and for greater good. Okay. Um, and, and so I think that's the way. So, so the, the carbon-based bodies that, that animals have, right, and through which life and consciousness and all this stuff flows um, are just platforms. They're just platforms that have contingently arisen over billions of years, but once we take control of the process, we can steer it. And in fact, this is the language, by the way, that Julian Huxley, right, um, uh, the first scientific director of UNESCO, uh, one of the people to, in fact, uh, produce the evolutionary synthesis that we now understand, bringing together all the different branches of biology in the 1940s. Um, he coined transhumanism in the 50s. Uh, and, and, and he, this is what he, he, this is the way he talks. Okay. Um, now he's not talking about computers though. This is the interesting thing. He, so he's not a Silicon Valley guy at all. He's talking about eugenics, 
Nope. He's talking about eugenics. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. He's talking about eugenics 2.0. Uh, and and you know so yeah we you know Nazis been there did that but now we're going to do it right. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and oh you yeah. laugh but this man was you know this no, guy I, lived to 1970. Yes. He he lived till 1975 and he was one of the great champions of in vitro fertilization. Yeah. Okay. You know, in the '60s, he was he was the man. He was he was talking it up, okay. Um, and, and he, but he thought it would all be biological. He, he did all think he he's, he didn't he he didn't think that the platform would change. What he thought was we'd be able to steer the process. Now you take that mentality and you add to it the Silicon Valley mentality, where you start to question whether the the carbon base is really that great to begin with. You right. see, uh, and then you start to get to where we are with this more advanced transhumanist argument. Okay, um, so, so yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's very much like you know, it's a very technological way to look at life, right? In the sense that very often the way in which um, technologies develop, uh, and this is especially true if we're talking about the modern West, um, right? Is that you know, you get some clever guy looking at something that happens in nature. Or something that, let's say, some primitive tribe is up to, right? Or primitive, whatever, you know, non-modern, pre-modern uh, tribe is up to. And you look at that and you say, that's kind of interesting. That's an, uh, They're doing something kind of interesting here. Yeah. But we can do it better. We can scale it up. We can make it more available. We can give it more power, right? We start, we start adding the dimensions to the original idea. And that's what transhumanism does to human beings. Right. So, you, you know, you get you get a transhumanist looking at God saying, God, you know, you did some good stuff there for the last five billion years, creating the earth and all those animals and plants and things. Not bad, not bad, not bad. Um, but now we take it over. Yeah. And, and the, the only reason I, I laugh there is because the concept of eugenics has become so toxic that that any casual mention of it is. I know. So do you like the word gene editing? Right. Do you yeah. like the word CRISPR? Yeah. I mean, I mean, come on, let's get real. It's all the same stuff. It's only now we know more. We know how to do it better, as it were, in the sense of being able to do it much more surgically and strategically than than was possible in the past. I mean, a lot of these early eugenicists didn't know any genetics at all. But now look at what we know. We know molecular biology. We can micromanage genes these days. Yeah, but it's the same project. Right. And, and they've talked about doing a sort of in vitro uh, selection where you can you, you can iterate very quickly rather than having to wait for generations to be born. You can do it within exactly. you know, the egg and, and select for things like intelligence, et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious. When you said uh, it's a very technological uh, view of life, um, and, and this is not necessarily my belief, but it's it's sort of like the 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 counter argument, I guess, a devil's advocate in this case. Um, there, there's a notion that tools should serve the person rather than the person the tools. Um, do you think there's any um, there's any yeah. there's any extent to which this could be reversed? going forward where, you know, we're talking about, oh, we have to, we have to upgrade humanity. And it's like, well, hang on a sec. Why do we have to upgrade humanity? You know, can't people be just as happy now? Are people going to be happier going forward? Well, I mean, well, 
on this last point, I think the transhumanist answer to all this stuff is we'll be, we'll, we, you know, we, we can't treat happiness as a sort of static value that in fact, by enhancing ourselves in various ways, we in fact open ourselves to new experiences, right? That'll always be kind of the comeback on that point. Okay. I mean, the earlier point you were raising about, um, about you know, tools are, are there to serve human beings. Um, I think actually transhumanists, I mean, so this is an interesting, this is an interesting aspect about um, how one thinks about the anthropology of technology, you might say. Um, it is true uh, that when people think about human beings as having descended from apes, okay, if you've got that kind of frame, um, it is in fact very common to think that tools are used, right? Because you sort of, you have a kind of a, a kind of a prehistory of technology in the back of your mind, whereby, um, you know, ape is rubbing two sticks together. You know, you, the, the, if, if you've ever seen the movie 2001 Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick movie from the late 60s, there, there is some great iconography related to this kind of vision of the world um, where, where you, you start with apes and the apes kind of mess around a little bit, trial and error, putting things together, and then things start to work and sick, and then they, they, they kind of reproduce the practice, right? And then, you know, scale up a few hundred thousand years and you end up getting human beings with tools, right? That's one way to look at it. And this is kind of where you're coming from on this, it seems to me. But that's not the only view about the anthropology of technology. There's another view, um, which in fact... Um, I think maybe the most famous person in recent times who holds this view is Marshall McLuhan. Uh, and this is the idea of, of technology as the extension of humans. Literal extension, right? Yeah. It's not just a separate thing that we create and then use for our purposes where there's still a detachment between the tool and the tool user. Rather, uh, it is the extension of the senses, right? So in, a, you know, so in other words, you, you actually imagine in some way you grow out Right, the technology enables you to grow out, and this kind of view of, of looking at technology, um, the the person who's normally credited with it, uh, and and McLuhan credits him with it as well, um, is the poet, the American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. I don't know if you if, if you're familiar with him, Ralph Waldo Emerson, transcendentalist poet, um, you know, and a, a great lecturer, essayist um, from New England, uh, early 19th century, very influential person actually. Um, uh, and and um, and so he first talked this way, referring to the telegraph, oh, the wow. telegraph, in the 1840s, um, and and the telegraph. So he saw the telegraph, as it were, as extending our senses across the world. Okay, um, and so that now we can know and we can hear and we can communicate with others as if they were here. So so it breaks down space and time, right? Um, and, and so this was already the imaginary, right? Uh, and this is a really different kind of view uh, from, from the other view because it's sort of, it, it sees the technology not in physical terms, like the user and the tool, but sees it in much more metaphysical way, right? In other words, it sees it as a part of the enhancing process, like people grow taller, live longer, the technology is kind of the same kind of enhancement. It enhances our mental powers. It enhances our sensory powers. So it's not about the physical so much. It's about the scaling up of the dimensions that the physical expresses. 
You see the difference. It's a different kind of way yeah. of looking at technology. And, and I think transhumanists are on this, on this side of the issue. Interesting. Uh, w- one thing I wanted to ask you um, that, that you had mentioned earlier that I didn't get a chance to follow up on is you said that certain aspects of uh, transhumanist technology could lead to wars uh, and conflicts. Sure. How so? Sure. I think, I think the most obvious one is resource wars in terms of energy requirements, mm. right? Um, I mean, I do think that if you're going to, I mean, I do think this is where if, I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of meta question here, namely, um, if, since we've got so many different transhumanist futures floating at once, and they're really all quite different from each other in many respects, um, what happens if one gets there first, as it were, right? Does that lock out the others? There, there, is, there, there is this issue. And, and so the concern here is that the computer-based one, the uploading stuff that we've been spending most of our time talking about in the, in the last few minutes, might actually be the one that gets off the ground first, right? In other words, um, that, that, the, that the ability uh, to provide things that people regard as plausible digital clones, we could call them brain emulations, right? Whatever you want to call them, right? That this may in fact be the first thing uh, to get to the finish line of transhumanism before, let's say, the idea of being able to regenerate ourselves so that we can live indefinitely, right? Which would be the much more carbon-based biological approach. Um, Now, so in that case, if everything starts going for this computer stuff, then it's going to be very important what is the nature of our computer technology in terms of what the energy requirements are, okay? Um, and, and so that's where the wars might, might start um, in the first instance, namely that if everything goes for the computers and, and, and the computers are still not all that energy efficient given the amount of task that is going to be uh, imposed on them, um, then I think you could see some real serious problems. Again, I think the stuff with blockchain and Bitcoin already presages a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that's one issue. Now, of course, there are the other kinds of, I would say, more conventional sorts of uh, conflicts that can arise from, uh, you know, inequality of access and, 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 and also the incompatibility of the different kinds of, you know, so if, if there are multiple ways of being human, as it were, some of which involve uploading, some of which don't, some are cyborgs, right? Uh, then there can be con- conflicts there with regard to how do you actually circumscribe the rights and the obligations that these different kinds of beings have toward each other, right? It becomes a bit like the kind of the way in which animal rights is often discussed, right? Where, where in a sense, you know, you want to give rights to animals, but 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 does that mean you? In- we interact with them? Are we governing our interaction with animals? Are we, as it were, segregating the animals so they don't have to deal with us? I mean, what are we talking about here? Um, and, and so I think a lot of those kinds of legal issues that arise in animal rights discussions already will arise in this kind of world where you have so much morphological variation. Interesting, yeah. And, and obviously the comparison to animal rights, I suppose, even in the future, if someone were listening to this and they were a transhumanist and, and you know, fully cyborg, they'd be like, I'm you know, how dare you? I'm not an animal, but it's a. Uh, oh, no, but I think that will be kind of the model because right. uh, it, because the thing about animals, of course, is, you know, they all they have different requirements, right? In order to live so-called satisfactory existences, right? To have, as the, the animal rights people like to talk about, you know, animals need to lead a flourishing life. So what's required? 
right? I mean, we already, I mean, there's already issues about this, like how you treat your pets. Yeah. Are yeah. you incarcerating them or are you allowing them to live a flourishing life? Um, I'm curious. We're, we're almost at an hour here. Um, what, okay, do you okay. see, what do you see as being um, the timeline here? I, I mean, it's very hard to make predictions, but, and you mentioned, you know, maybe something like uh, uploading our brains to a computer comes first or, you know, what have you. Um, do you see, do you see, uh, you know, hints of, of what's to come um, or is it just a shot in the dark at this point? Um, well, first of all, um, on the business of the computers coming first, I, I, I just let me recommend a book because I, I, I'm not just making, there is a book actually kind of imagining what the consequences would be for human beings if in fact the uploading comes first. And that's, the book is called The Age of M's, where M-E-M, -E the word yes. M, M is spelled E-M, right, by Robin Hansen, who's an yes. economist. Had, had him on Okay, yes. So, so in a sense, uh, a lot of my thinking is influenced by him. I think he's, he's actually thought about this very carefully. I give him a lot of credit. Um, but I think in terms of the timeline uh, for any of this happening, first of all, uh, the, the, the first point I would always draw people's attention to is the fact that um, the dates tend to be set so that the people making the predictions can benefit from it. Right. Okay. And that's why it tends, and, and given that the sort of people who make these kinds of predictions that all these transhumanist futures will be realized are generally people in, in middle age, uh, uh, maybe late middle age in, in case of Ray Kurzweil. And so you don't want, you want, if you're going to benefit from it, that is to say your body is not so dilapidated that, that, you know, you become unusable, um, that uh, you can't let it go more than 20 years or 25 years into the future. Right. So that's why, you know, dates like 2040, 2045, 2050 keep on getting floating, around, floating around. But if you've been following this business for a few years, um, you realize that, you know, 20 years ago, they were saying 2020, 2030. Right. Yeah. I mean, so this is a movable feast in terms of the deadline. What I think, you know, that's coming from the transhumanist camp. So because the transhumanists are the, the transhumanists themselves set themselves up this way. OK, they do these predictions. It's not like the, the bunkers are doing their predictions. They're doing the predictions. And, and I can understand why they're doing it. And it's not just out of desperation that they want to benefit from it. I think it's also necessary to have relatively short time frames in order to motivate investment. Right. Because, again, I think this goes to the point that most of the investment on the research that would actually bring this about is private. OK, yeah. governments aren't mandating this. Right. Uh, I mean, it's um, it's private. And so, you you know, it's the typical thing. Right. If you want to, you know, keep the capital rolling in, you got to say we're on the verge. We're on the verge. Just give us a few more years and a few more billions. Right. Now, I do think it will happen. This is the point. I do think it will happen because there is so much pushing in that direction, including the PR. And the PR is all over the culture. Everybody kind of is beginning to know about, especially in the younger generation. So I think it's going to happen, but you know, it could be like a hundred years. Okay. Right. Yeah. It could be like, a, it could be, I mean, it depends, you know, cause look, here's the other thing I think we need to keep in mind, given that we're in the middle of a war and we just, and, and we're getting out of a pandemic. Um, there are all kinds of very humanity 1.0 things that can interfere with these predictions. Okay. Oh, sure. yeah. uh, and these are not always factored in. Right. Because, uh, you know, 
because look, if you know, if you look at how, where how resources are going to be allocated after the pandemic and after the war and so forth, I mean, transhumanism may benefit somewhat from the pandemic in this respect, because there's some people who have some rather wild ideas about how to deal with pandemics, uh, which are kind of transhumanist. So we don't have to go into that here. Um, but I think with regard to issues of war and so forth, um, that could be very disruptive to all these projects. Um, you know, that is unless the transhumanists decide to support one side in the war and create all these superhuman drones, which some of the science fiction films mm -hmm. go on about. Um, but that's another story. Uh, but the point is, I think it's on. It's a, it's in the cards. I think it's it's by no means too early to think about regulation and about putting a legal framework on all this stuff because I think that's that's generally speaking absent. I mean, we've got too much of the kind of thing that happened with the smartphone example, where it's a case by case thing, right? It just hit, you know, something gets up to the Supreme Court and you're forced to decide it, but there's no overarching legislation, okay? Uh, and I think it's not too early to start thinking about that kind of stuff. So that's where I would leave it. Fantastic. Um, and Steve, where can people, uh, can, can you give people the name of, of your, um, your books, uh, where they can find them? Sure. Okay, so um, I uh, so starting in, in 2011, I I, uh, I published three books with Paul Grave, um, called the first one called Humanity 2.0, um, and then there was a follow up called Preparing for Life in Humanity 2.0, and then in and then I published a third one with Veronica Lipinska called The Proactionary Imperative which actually gets more into this kind of legal stuff that we have been periodically talking about here. Uh, Lipinska, uh, who's a former student of mine, is a lawyer by training. Um, now, the most recent book I've written, uh, which, which in a way was very much part of the beginning of the discussion, um, is Nietzschean Meditations, um, uh, Untimely Thoughts at the Dawn of the Transhuman Era. Uh, it is published by Schwabe, S-C-H-W-A-B-E, a Swiss publisher as part of a new series on post-human studies. Um, and um, yeah, and, I, and I'm obviously continuing to work on this kind of stuff. Uh, and um, I, I think um, there, is a, there is going to be a real interesting, I mean, what I'm working on now is basically the extent to which all of these developments end up forcing us to change the legal definition of human with regard to very fundamental issues like what what does it mean to possess and who possesses a human right? Okay, so that's kind of where I am with this at, at this time. Steve, thank you once again for your time. Uh, always a pleasure, and um, I'll okay. uh, enjoy the discussion. Okay, well, thank you very much, and same here, and um, good luck. Till next time. next time. Take <laughs> bye care. Bye. Thank you to Steve Fuller, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.